Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. This last week I was sitting with our staff and we were really working on like what defines the values of our church. And uh, we, we just came across this. Like we've known we've always valued this, but we value tattered Bibles. <laughs> I mean, worn out, beat up Bibles because they're so used, highlighted, and underlined. And this church has stood on that principle since 1850. This church has been wearing out Bibles since 1850. And we'll brag about that. And so something about our church, you got to know, we're going to teach from the Bible. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to check it out. We're going to try and put it on the bottom shelf for anybody so that anybody who walks in here and doesn't have a church background, a Bible background, that you'll understand what we're talking about. Okay? So because of that, because we believe in tattered Bibles that they'll change lives, would you do this? Just grab it out of the chair in front of you. If you got a, the version app on your phone, I don't care if you wear out your phone or wear out a paper Bible. I don't think you can wear out a phone, right? Open it up, all right? Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. We'll get there in just a moment. Um, maybe you know the story of Marie Antoinette. Maybe you don't. She's the Queen of France during the French Revolution. She is not a very popular figure. At least she wasn't with the, the regular people of her day. Uh, she is known for this one quote, and most of you will probably recognize this. When she was told by people, it was reported to her, that the people out there are starving, she responded with what? Let them eat cake. Yeah, it's actually probably more mythological. It's probably a myth rather than she actually said those words. But she actually had this value of wealth, this value of lavish living that left her detached from reality and detached from the needs of the people around her and eventually detached from her very own head. You laughed at that. You're sick. Today, I tell you that story because I'm going to introduce you to a rich, young ruler. Luke calls him a rich, young ruler. But Matthew, when he tells a story, he doesn't use the word ruler in his name. He just tells the story of this rich, young man. So we've been in this series in Mark 10 for three weeks. We're going to wrap it up today called First the Worst. And the concept is this, is that if we keep putting ourselves first, it's actually the worst life. It's not the life that Jesus wants for us. It's not one that's actually worth living. And so first is the worst. And we went through this. Week one was about marriage and divorce. And we kind of landed on this thing of how do you put your, your spouse first? And then last week was all about vulnerable children and how do you put people who are vulnerable in your life, how do you put them first? And Jesus actually twists the story to say, I want you, when you approach me, I want you to approach me like a vulnerable child, just dependent upon me. And this week, we wrap it up with this story. It's about a young man with affluence. Here's the story, Mark 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. He fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's the subject. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, 
Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's a tragic story. Jesus is like, you can, have, you can have one thing. Here it is, ready? You can have me or all your money. What do you want? And he just drops his head and he walks away. I mean, not in this life and not in the next life did this young man get Jesus. So I want to pause for a moment because this is, um, this is unbelievably important in this room and for everybody watching online. I want to address our audience for just a moment. Here's our audience. Ready? Some of y'all are rich. And you're hearing this story and you're like, crap. I should have stayed home and prepped for the Super Bowl today. (laughs) Maybe that's what some of you are doing online right now. If you define rich on a global scale, just so we're understanding this, to be in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world, your total assets need to be. Total assets is equity in your house. Money in the bank, a retirement fund, all of that combined together to be in the top 10% of wealthy people in the world. Your total assets need to be $93,170 to be in the top 10%. Nearly half our world lives on less than $5.50 a day. Now, by the way, those people don't live in the Bay Area. If you know how to read and write, if your home has electricity, if you are watching this device on home, on a digital device, chances are you in the top tier of the world's most wealthy people. So let's just be honest about this. For everyone watching at home, everybody watching in the room, uh, we are the wealthiest people in the world. Hold that thought for just a moment. There's also those right now that you are struggling to keep a consistent source of income right now. Those are you in the room. It's those that are watching online. There are those that do not have a place to live right now. There are those who are struggling to put food on the table. Um, I was actually speaking with one of my uh, friends who goes to this church, and she's a teacher, and she said this. She goes, three kids in in my elementary class this week Their parents lost their jobs. They didn't have a a savings. They're struggling. Her kids in her class regularly, she said, skip meals. So I had to get permission from the office to purchase food and bring it to my classroom so that these kids can eat. That's who's in this room. In this room, listening to this, are those who feel the pressure to provide for your families. There's those in this room that you have fear and anxiety that you might not make it. Some of you have fear and anxiety because of the pressure put on you by your parents to be a success. And there was a price tag that went along with that. There are those in the room, your trust fund kids. There's those of you, though, who came from a poor background and you worked your butt off. And you're super proud of where you're at today financially because of your hard work. All of those people are in this room today. It's interesting because everybody's got different feelings about affluence. And I just think Jesus welcomes all of that. He, he welcomes all of that and he wants you to hear. And so uh, my, the, the question about today really is, will you hear it just from your lens? Or will you try and hear it in such a way that you're going to hear it from Jesus' actual words of what it might mean for someone who's struggling 
to make it. And someone who has an awful lot of money, will you hear his truth? And so I realize this. It's someone, some people just think this. Listen, pastors, they always talk about money. I, there's, this, um, there's this person that told me, yeah, my, some of my family, they don't really come to church all that often. But they come like three or four times a year. He said, but man, every time they come, you talk about money. I don't talk about money all that much, to be honest with you. So some of you think, like, pastors, they're always talking about money. They just got to knock it off. There's other stuff in the Bible, right? See, here's the deal. We've been just teaching our way through Mark. And when we teach our way through Mark, you just come to these passages. And you're like, here it is. I'm just going to teach it as it exists. So, so here it is. Just so we totally understand this. How much did Jesus talk about affluence? Let me just read to you a couple things. In Mark 10, he says, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not store for, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Again, in Matthew 6, he says, You cannot serve both God and money. In Revelation 3.17, he like punches you in the nose with this. He says, You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not have a need for anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Someone forgot to tell Jesus that's totally politically incorrect to say. In Luke 12, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Don't miss this. In the Bible, there's more than 500 verses on prayer and faith. But in the Bible, there's over 2,000 verses on money, wealth, and possessions. So just hear my heart in this. If you don't trust pastors because you feel like they always talk about money, I am not trying to overwhelm. I'm not trying to manipulate Jesus' teaching so that we're not taking a second offering, okay? But when he speaks about this, we have to listen. And so here's how this goes. The question was actually about salvation, about inheriting eternal life. Good teacher, this man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is about entering the kingdom of God. This is about entering heaven, uh, inheriting eternal life, salvation, heaven. I mean, it's all the same thing. And Jesus' response is kind of weird. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. We use the word good as like it's just barely a step above okay. How was your day? It was okay. And if it was just a step above that, it was like, oh, it was good, Right? We have other words like fantastic, exceptional, and all these other words that are so much higher, right? But in the first century Hebrew mind, they thought about this in, in the scriptures of the Old Testament, that all good things came from God. He, it doesn't say, oh, I had an exceptionally good gift from God. He just, no, no. All goodness comes from God. And so when he says good teacher, Jesus is recognizing this. I understand what you're saying. You're calling me good like God is good. And the implication is Jesus is adding this, I am good just like God is good. And then Jesus goes on to say this, what do you have to do to enter? Well, here it is. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, shouldn't commit adultery, you shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. He goes through the not commandments, right? And then he says, by the way, also honor your father and mother. And the guy gets super excited. Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. You know what the list was? It was the list of the Ten Commandments. He goes, he gives the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, which are all the do not ones. 
Then he jumps back up to the fourth, which is the honor your father and your mother. And he takes uh, like nine and ten and he combines it into a defrauding one. He's like, did you keep the list? What, verse, what commandments did he skip? Yeah, the first three. You know what the first three are about? It's actually about your relationship with God. You should have no other gods before me. Uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath day holy. What do, you, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Remember the whole point of Mark chapter 8? It's about putting other people first and putting yourself last. So he takes all the ones that have you and your relationship with people, and he's like, put everybody else first. Do that perfectly, and you might be good. And the rich man responds, teacher, I've kept all these since I was a boy. What he's saying is this, since my bar mitzvah, since I was responsible now for me, I've done this. I've done this almost to the sense he's saying, I've done this flawlessly. And then Jesus turns around and says something shocking. He looked at him and he loved him. And if you got a pen and you got a paper Bible under that, he loved him. What he was about to say to him wasn't designed to be cruel or mean. He just, he loved this young man. And he's like, the image that I have for your life of you being free, of you being free to give and receive love, of you being at your best, the life that I have for you that is so, so good. Here it is. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That's the best life? (laughs) I got a better plan, Jesus. How about I keep everything I have, but we still do life together. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. I mean, Jesus loved this guy. Maybe he loved his boldness. Maybe he loved his sincerity. But can you imagine? Can you imagine this man walking away and Jesus going, you could have had me. You could have all of me in this life and all of me in the next life. You could have experienced where we were going and what we are doing, and you're, you're leaving. Sometimes we as parents, when we think we know the life that's best for our kids, and we watch them walk away from it, you know that sadness? I mean, multiply that. This is what Jesus knows. And this guy walks away from it. It's an incredibly sad scene. But we want to be really, 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 really clear about this. Because I know how some of you read the Bible. You read the Bible, and whatever you read and whatever it says, you're like, oh, that's what Jesus is saying to me. Can I be super clear? He's not saying this to you. He said it to that guy. If you're taking notes, here it is. Jesus' financial challenge to the rich man was not a universal condemnation against being rich. And some of you are like, hallelujah, let's go home. I'm off the hook, right? Let's get out of here before the pastor says something else. Just because he tells this man what he should do to follow him doesn't mean that he's telling you to do that. He says one thing you lack. Not you, you, but you, him, right? The rich guy. So why does Jesus tell this man to give away his money This is what I think is true, and it's in your notes there. I think in Jesus' economy, the rich are always at a disadvantage. Sounds weird, doesn't it? 
Because we think because we're rich, we're at an advantage. But in Jesus' economy, in the kingdom of God, how life works there, because you're rich, you're at a disadvantage. Verse 23 reads this way. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) We should start sweating right now. I think what Jesus is communicating is that in his economy, here are the disadvantages for the rich. Let me just give you, I don't know, three or four of them. Number one, I think the rich can be distracted with all the options that wealth brings. With wealth comes opportunity, and with opportunity come distractions. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what it is that's valuable in life. Number two, one author wrote, wrote it this way. The rich can know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I think that's a little harsh on the rich because I almost get offended by that. So let me say it easier, right? I think the rich can forget that relationships trump riches every time. Let me say that again. The rich can forget that relationship trumps wealth every time. The greatest asset in life is relationships. The ability to give love and receive love. But here's a challenge if you're rich. The rich may never know if people truly love them or they love them for what they have. It's a disadvantage of being rich. Third option here, the rich can be tempted with pride and self-dependence. Well, why do I need God? Sometimes I use this phrase, hey, when has God ever shown up and shown off in your life? Like, When does he show up and show off? I mean, you prayed for something. God, I need this. I'm going to bind. God, would you help me? And some of you, you have great stories about how God showed up and showed off in your life. Now listen, if you're poor, you're going to come up against way more opportunities where you're like, God, the water heater broke. There's water going out. We're going to take cold showers forever. God, God, I, I need. And somehow money comes in. God showed up and showed off in your life. You see, if you're rich, instead of making a prayer, you make a purchase. And it's hard to look back over your life to see how God has showed up and showed off. Now, I'm, I'm, not all of our prayers are about financial needs, right? There's some things that money can't buy. But the rich, I think, are sometimes tempted to just be self-dependent. Why do I need God? I, I can honestly tell you, I have friends that are like, I don't know why I need God. i got a huge bank account. Four, the rich can be lured into a false sense of God's favor. In the first century Hebrew mind, it was always thought this— That wealth, success was a sign of God's favor. God favored you so much that he gave you all of this. It's why the disciples in verse 24, they turn around and they say this. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said, and they were amazed at the words of how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they're amazed at it because like, well, if the rich are blessed and the rich are favored, how are the rest of us who don't have anything? How are we ever going to get into heaven if the rich favored from God? Because they made the mistake to think that wealth was actually a sign that God was with you. So the disciples are amazed, verse 24, at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Notice he took away the word rich. He's like, for everybody... Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. All right. How many of y'all been going to church since you were kids? Then I guarantee you've heard a pastor preach this. See, in the, 
in Jerusalem, in the gate there, in one of the, 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 the entryways into Jerusalem, when the gates were closed, there was a gate so big that, that if a camel unloaded all of its burden and got down on its knees, it could scoot its way through this one gate that is known as the eye of the needle. And the application of the story is, this is how we have to approach Jesus. We unload all of our burdens. We come with nothing. And we just get on our knees and approach Jesus. And that's the way to enter heaven. It makes a great story. There's no actual historical evidence that a gate like that ever existed in Jerusalem. It's a fun story that sometimes pastors tell but I think what they're trying to do is they're actually trying to soften the words of Jesus to say, no, 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 it's actually possible for rich people, okay, to enter heaven. Oh, I feel better about myself. Oh, it's actually possible for for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, good, we feel better about ourselves. Let me be really clear on this. You ready? The camel is a camel, and the eye of a needle is an eye of a needle. That's what Jesus was saying. A camel pretty big animal. Get that through the eye of a needle. You know, get the, you've done it. If you haven't done it, it's because you've never sewed anything in your life. How do you get the camel through an eye of a needle? You don't. The point is that it's absolutely impossible. There's nothing that you can do to make that happen. First, Jesus is saying this, it's impossible for the rich to get into heaven. There's nothing that they can bring, purchase, or barter that will get them into heaven. You get that? Second, Jesus changes the statement. How hard is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? For anybody. It means that it is impossible for anyone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are like, well, then who can be saved? They just don't get it. Like, if the righteous guy who's rich and has God's favor can't get in, how are any of us going to get in? And verse 27, if you're going to focus on anything, look at verse 27. It's the key to the story. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This statement's in your notes. To follow Jesus and enter his kingdom is impossible outside of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. How do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? It's impossible. But with God, God can do anything. How do you help a rich person see that they actually have a need for a savior? It's impossible. But God can do it. How can you help a rich man become humble to approach Jesus like a vulnerable child? Well, it's impossible. You can't do it. But, but God can. And he did. He actually did it just a week or so after Jesus spoke these words. When God had his own son die on a cross for our sins so that we could live in relationship with him, so that we could be forgiven, so that he would allow us into heaven one day, that's how he made it possible. Outside of Jesus, rich or poor, or anywhere in between, none of us have hope of being forgiven. That's Jesus' point. So Peter in the story gets all excited. He's like, well, if the rich can't get in, he's like, we've walked away from all of our wealth and everything. So he gets all excited. Verse 28, we've left everything to follow you. His insinuation is, so what's our reward? 
Peter, dude's always thinking about himself. And Jesus responds with this. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Along with persecution, don't forget about that, and in the age to come, eternal life. If you have left a home or a family or you've given up possessions for Jesus, for the mission of Jesus, here's what he says. He'll reward you. He'll reward you in this life and he'll reward you in the next life. I'm going to make this very clear to you, though, because it has misled some people in our church. And I do not want you to be misled by the the prosperity gospel because it leads people astray. God's plan is not for you to be rich. You're like, okay, so I just got to leave something behind and I'm going to get a hundred times that. He's not saying sell your house and give it to the poor and I'm going to give you a hundred houses. That's not what he's saying. He might say, listen, if you leave something behind like a house, I'm going to give you a family like you've never had before. It's not house for house or or leaving behind a mother and gaining a mother over here. He's like, there are things that you will sacrifice for the kingdom of God. But trust me, in this life and in the next, it will be worth it. It's interesting. um, This is just a total side note for you. In my family, a lot of the thought has been around, man, family is everything. And if you don't have much family left or with you or supportive of you, um, I would venture, I would ask you, read the Gospels. Because of this, Jesus actually takes the church, the relationships you have with brothers and sisters in Christ, and he actually elevates them over your biological family. It's going to grate on some of y'all. Because he just talks about this family that is the family of God. You leave your biological family behind, you're going to follow me in this mission. I will give you family like you've never had before. By the way, he promises persecution too, which is one of the things that the prosperity gospel really struggles to explain. Because surely if you're suffering, surely if you're hurting, surely if you're experiencing loss... You must not be in God's will, right? Because that's not prosperity. God promises us in multiple places. Jesus promises us in multiple places that there will be persecution. There'll be suffering. There'll be loss. Back to this. At the heart of Jesus' teaching on affluence is this, that we can get tangled up in the pursuit of money because we look to it for our security. But the security that we actually need is having a relationship with Jesus where we trust him. I think Jesus summarizes the entire chapter 10 with this next verse. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I think it has everything to do with his passage about divorce and marriage. I think it has everything to do with how we approach children and how we value the vulnerable and how we're supposed to approach Jesus as a vulnerable child to say, Jesus, I'm dependent on you for everything. But sometimes our money and our wealth and our affluence get in the way where we depend on that instead of on Jesus. And I'll say it this way. It's in your notes. Jesus' story is primarily about our false confidence in stuff. 
other than Jesus. But it's also about what we will do with our affluence. I think there's two points in this story of Jesus. I think it's first, our confidence in him over what we have. But I think there's also a statement in here about what we do with our affluence, what we do with what we have. Um, just a quick story for you before we wrap up. I was driving around town just Friday, and uh, I don't often do this, but got to an intersection. There was a person with a sign there uh, asking for money, and uh, I, I rarely have money in my wallet. Um, not that I don't have money, okay? We're not taking a second offering today, okay? Um, but I just, I just rarely ever carry it with me. But um, I saw this, and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give this gal something. So I found my wallet, pulled out a $10 bill, and I was just driving by. I even slowed down the flow of traffic. You know those drivers? To hand a, gave her 10 bucks. And by the way, any blessing I would have got from that is now gone because I told you my story. And I just drove off. And I was like, you know, God, I, I just I kind of felt like you wanted me to do that. You know, it wasn't about 30 minutes later. I was on my phone on my Amazon app. And I was researching hats. I got dozens of hats at home. Old ones, new ones, dirty ones, the baseball, trucker hats, um, running hats, wide brim hats. But I was thinking, you know what? It's getting sunny. And when I go surfing, I I, I get this skin cancer stuff that I got to deal with every now and then. I need one of those wide brim hats. So when I'm surfing, like it's got a little chin strap underneath here, you know, and it's waterproof. Like I need one of those. And so 30 minutes after I was feeling pretty good for giving away 10 bucks, I just bought myself a 30 something dollar hat. And if I'm super honest with you, you won't be shocked by this. Here's how I do my finances. I start at the base level. I give God 10% of everything that we make, my wife and I. Just give it away. First of all, here's 10%, God. Why? That's the baseline. That's the starting place. I know average American probably gives away about 3% of their wealth. This is the truth. And I... I sometimes pat myself on the back about the 10%. And the reality is, is I think about myself first all the time when it comes to my money. It's like, okay, God, you got your 10%. Here's my 90% and my 90%. It's all about me. You realize it's not about the hat, right? By the way, I tried it out yesterday. It works great in the surf. What a day yesterday. Here's how I deal with my money. I daydream about what I can get all the time. You know what I don't daydream about enough? God, who needs what I have? Because I, I got so much. I got so much that I can have dozens of hats. God, so God, how could I daydream more about my affluence but not for me? I just know it lives in my heart. And if I'm honest with you, I'm being very transparent with you right now. I just daydream about me because... I put myself first. And if I realized it and I really understood this text, I think I would understand the way I live my life sometimes is first is the worst. How can I, God, put myself last in situations so that I might experience the richness of life? You know what the funnest thing I've ever done with money is? Think about that for a moment. Let your mind run wild. What's the funnest thing you've ever done with money? funnest thing I've ever done is give it away. When you see some need out there and you're like, actually, I can help with that. 
That's when money's been the most fun. But you know what's funny? It doesn't stop me from daydreaming about me. And I think here's what I'd love to do this morning is just this. Jesus, if you're going to tell me but many who are first will be last and the last first, and it's a story of affluence, if you're a Christian, by the way, if you're not a Christian, you're totally off the hook on this one. But understand, if you're not a Christian, you're like that guy who just walked away from Jesus. And you don't get him in this life and you don't get him in the next life. So if you're a follower of Jesus, do we really take God's word seriously? Because we can wear this out and we can say we believe in tattered Bibles. But it's not just believing in tattered Bibles. It's we're applying this stuff to our lives to say, God, how do I live this? Then I just want us to contemplate and take seriously the story of affluence that says the first, they're going to be last. And the last, first. Last quick question for you. It was one of the convicting things I ran across this week as I was thinking about my own life is, have I ever gone without, changed my plans, or said no to something? Have I ever gone without, or changed my plans, or said no to something because I gave away money? You know, I budgeted this vacation. I budgeted this surfboard purchase, this bike purchase. I got a whole garage full of purchases. Um, Have I made plans to get something? And have I ever said no because I'm going to take that money and give it away? It's an uncomfortable question for me because I'm not sure I've done that that much in my life, if at all. Because usually the stuff I give away, I've already taken care of everything I need and want already. I'm just trying to approach this in a real way for me. My prayer for you is that as you read God's word, that you might be able to contemplate for yourself, God, what do you want me to do with what it is I have? First of all, there's nothing I have that can get me into heaven. I trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, and that's it. But as I live my life, what I do with my affluence I'm going to take your word seriously, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Lord, I know it might sound weird, but I really think you want us to have fun with money. I just know the funnest thing is watching us step into someone else's world and help them and serve them and put them first ahead of ourselves. So, Lord, I would just ask for conviction over this. And the ability to laugh and smile and not be begrudging or tight-fisted, but that we would live open-handedly towards you and towards those people who are in need. Jesus, we declare this together as a church, that we trust in you alone to save us. We trust in your death on the cross, and we know that any accomplishments that we have do not earn love or salvation. But God, whatever gifts you give us, Teach us to live with an open hand. And if you agree with that, would you say amen?